You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Well, I'm going to warn listeners that um, normally we record this at like 10 in the morning, and we all seem to be firing pretty well because the, the caffeine is at least coursing through mine and Michael's veins and and fresh sunlight is is keeping uh fred awake uh and charged but now listeners it's uh it's one in the afternoon east coast time and you know lunch is kicking in so this might not be as exciting as normal but we're gonna give it a shot so let's start today with one of the dumbest things i've seen in the last week which is california approving digital license plates what's a digital license plate you might ask well imagine having like a kindle as your license plate. So it's a digital screen that prints out your license plate number and it could print out such helpful messages as car stolen, which when I steal cars, the first thing I like to do is replace the license plate. Um, Not only is this just technology in search of a solution, it's yours for the low, low price of $19.95 a month for a 48 month contract. That's $215 and 40 cents a year for you to be a douchebag. Or or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some great use to this that makes more sense. But the the company said that the the material that they print these digital ink license plates on is six times stronger than glass. I want to introduce them to steel. But that's just my thoughts. Gentlemen, what do you think? Well, I think I'd be happy to give people a license to be an idiot for half that price. Sold. All right. I agree. Okay, Michael. Well, I mean, my first question on these things was, you know, you're get, you seem to be giving the uh, consumer a little too much control over their license plates here because it could, you know, I, I don't think police would like this very much because if you're in control of your license plate display, I mean, aren't you in control of when and where it displays? I know you can change the colors and things, but it, it seems to add a way to mask your license plate, maybe to avoid speed cameras, to mask it, to um, confuse law enforcement. I mean, there's a number of ways, particularly if this thing isn't very secure from a um, software perspective or that, you know, it could be modified to do not so great things. So I don't know. I mean, I, there's so many personalized license plates in states now where you can choose your college or your favorite animal or your favorite drink or your favorite place to vacation or whether or not you like Jimmy Buffett. You know, it's just it's overwhelming. I don't you know when you think the police are not happy with looking at license plates and totally not being able to tell what state someone's from um, as part of their process of identifying the you know the owner of the vehicle. So it it presents a lot of, you know a lot of problems i think for for law enforcement and particularly for the guys who want to catch you when you're driving on toll roads without a easy pass yeah it sounds the way you described it it's like when people used to order checks and you get to design, you know choose your own design do you want the classic do you want snoopy and i guess that's what people are doing with these license plates i, I don't i don't understand and the thing is they advertise this as being hey for for more money we'll sell this to fleets like so you know you want a you know a fleet of trucks or something like that but you're not changing the license plate you know on a 
you know, on on a whole bunch of, you know, uh, transit vehicles like FedEx isn't like, hey, we're missing a license plate from this vehicle. Just take it off another one. Right. Yeah, I don't see the value proposition there because it's really not that hard to take plates and put them on and off vehicles. It certainly doesn't cost you twenty dollars a month to do that. Hey, as a fleet, I think it's thirty five dollars a month. <laughs> well, I mean, it's similar. I mean, this is just another feature in a giant bunch of things that we'll probably come up at some point in the podcast today about feature bloat. Like there's just, there's so many new techs out there and there's so many different people trying to get their hands on the big pile of money that people think is coming out of them that there are all these little tech systems you could find and install in your vehicle that, you know, aren't always fully vetted for safety concerns and are, are sometimes, you know, completely avoiding uh, some concerns we have with safety like the tesla buddy the little uh rubber tool that came out a few years ago that held the steering wheel so that the tesla couldn't detect uh whether or not you were watching a movie or sleep um so there's there's always products there's always folks willing to jump in um, and make some money without fully thinking out all of the enforcement and safety and uh, consequences as that might happen in this case Speaking of of our friends at Tesla, um, this news from ABC News, 11 more crash deaths are linked to automated tech vehicles. 11 people were killed in U.S. crashes involving vehicles that were using automated driving systems during a four-month period earlier this year. Um, This and, and further down in the article, safety advocates note that the deaths of motorcyclists in crashes involving Tesla vehicles using automated driver assistance systems such as autopilot have been increasing. So there's a uh, 11 people killed. 10 of the deaths were involved vehicles made by our friends at Tesla. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on here in that. Um, I mean, they, they quote uh, somebody uh, named Michael Brooks in this article, and he complains that NHTSA isn't storing this data correctly or not tracking it. Um, so it seemed like at first they were okay. Now I just misread it. Never mind. So yes, people are relying on automated tech, as we've said, and they're killing people, and those deaths are increasing. Right, and, and you know, looking at the data that's that's coming in, this is all coming in in response to the standing general order that NHTSA issued that they started posting data for in um, July, and this was a story about the most recent update. That showed, you know, as all of the the um, reporting has shown on the crash avoidance systems, that Tesla's overrepresented. I mean, they're overrepresented there primarily because they collect more and better data than anyone else. So it's kind of a good and a bad thing for them. Um, but that we are continuing to see, and we've we've also heard from motorcyclists on a number of occasions telling us that they don't believe that Teslas are recognizing them. Um, and this isn't just at dark when we believe Tesla cameras might have trouble distinguishing. This is, you know, we've heard from folks in California where you can at certain speeds split lanes and go between vehicles. And we've heard that they're not able to identify motorcyclists that are um, driving in, in in that particular scenario. It's legal to do that in a few states and areas. Um, and it can be fairly safe and a, and a way to ease traffic. Um, not always. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things there. Well, obviously, not always if vehicles that are supposedly able to drive themselves in certain circumstances aren't doing a good job of recognizing motorcycles. So we have a lot of concerns there. It's hard from the data because Tesla's redacting everything. Um, 
They don't want to give us narratives that even describe the crash. They say that is confidential business information, which is complete BS. What, wouldn't that um, be public records? It, it, you know, NHTSA is receiving this information voluntarily. And so the manu- they've allowed the manufacturers to redact where the manufacturers believe there's some confidentiality. Um, Tesla, however, is just goes overboard. Every time they submit something to NHTSA investigations, they claim that the entire document is is um, confidential, which is a lie. I mean, there are a lot of things in cover letters and other sections of documents that have been, you know, given to NHTSA and given to the public uh, by manufacturers for years without those type of redactions. So basically, they're just employing their fleet of attorneys to uh, obfuscate any information that that they're willing to let the public receive. So it's um you can't we we don't know all the details about those crashes, but we we you know like I say we've heard from motorcyclists there are definitely concerns about whether the um, Tesla system is recognizing them and not just motorcyclists but also you know the emergency responders and some of the other things NITS is looking into right now, but. As I think I said in the article, we've been waiting for action on Tesla for quite some time, and NHTSA seems to be sitting on its hands and not going after um, Tesla in the way that we think they should be, um, because their Tesla's been playing a cat and mouse game with the agency for a number of years now. And although the agency has shown signs of some stronger enforcement lately, we're we're not seeing that final piece of the puzzle where Tesla is actually you know disincentivized from continuing to do some of the questionable um, things it's doing regarding the advertising and the uh, the types of software it's um, providing and updates and the information it's providing to consumers. So just showing these with the automated systems that fatalities are increasing, can we just make the assumption that this is because more and more of these systems are on the road or are they just, are they getting worse over time with software updates or we really just don't know? We, we don't know. And I think at this point, it's probably a lot to do with the fact that they're being actually reported and collected for the very first time in a pub, in a wow. format where the public can view them. Um, so there's going to be, you know, there obviously are going to be uh, more reports and there are going to be more questions about different vehicles, which is the point of the whole thing, is so that we can actually see what's going on on our roads and see which vehicles that claim to be safe and claim to have all these crash avoidance features claim to have autopilot. Um, those are my air quotes for, for the audience. Um, they just, you know, a lot of those systems are inflated or they don't exactly work properly. You know, if you hear automatic emergency braking, you think it's going to stop you in an emergency situation, which is at, you know, high speeds in the dark and in a lot of situations where it just doesn't work yet in the majority of vehicles on the road. So it's, you know, we think it's really important and more important than ever that consumers really focus on that how to get from point A to point B, what their, what capabilities their vehicles actually have versus, you know, focusing on things like colorful license plates and creature comforts in the vehicle and whatever the article Sony is talking about that you sent me that says they're going to incorporate the metaverse into vehicles, Mm -hmm. which sounds absolutely crazy to me. I also want to, just mentioned that, you know, one of the things that we would like to see come out of this is that rather than, a you know, 
a press release saying, well, we've only had 11 deaths, so that proves we're safe. We would much rather see somebody say, we have looked carefully at the circumstances surrounding this crash. We have brought that into our simulations. We have updated and reviewed our software, our software algorithms, to make sure that this kind of incident will never be repeated. That's something you really hope for when, where you've got a system that controls a vehicle like this. That would be a fundamental safety enhancement of the operating system. We're not seeing that. We've never seen anybody say, yes, we acknowledge that this terrible thing has happened. We are sympathetic to the people who have been injured or killed. And so we are taking the investment and putting it into updating the algorithm so that this can never happen again. That seems like a reasonable thing to do and well within the capabilities that the automobile companies are advertising as part of their overall self-driving strategy. Uh, we've never seen that. I, uh, it's tragic and I think a terrible indictment of the automobile companies that they are not addressing these known crashes and these known situations with that same kind of intensity. Well, also, it seems like a failure at NHTSA from actually having a spine to enforce these things and enforce auto companies to do the right thing. Um, right. And, and, you know, they, they, it's a weird situation, too, with Tesla, because we know that the, um, the administration is very focused on emphasizing the benefits of electric vehicles, and Tesla is the largest EV manufacturer in the world. Um, and so it's, you know, coming down on Tesla in, in some respects hinders a push towards ele electric vehicles. We don't know and have no basis to claim that that's really uh, what is happening. But, it, you know, NHTSA being so slow to respond to this issue and really put Tesla's feet to the fire um, continues to baffle me. And it suggests that there's more going on than meets the eye here. It'll be interesting to see when, you know, Ford and GM and other legacy automakers, when they push more and more of these vehicles out there, how they'll respond or if they're going to take Tesla's tact and just redact everything. Or maybe they've realized, well, you've gone through this before and it didn't really work out well for us long term and maybe they'll be more open. Or maybe. You can always hope. I admire your optimism, as <laughs> always. Well, you know, I'm drunk. <laughs> um, so, uh, it's, it's tangentially related to automated vehicles. We've talked about this in the past, and I think Fred brought up the perfect example, um, in a previous episode is what happens when two automated vehicles come to an intersection. Now with humans, we can make eye contact and decide who goes, but with automated vehicles, we're kind of at a loss. And so some Japanese researchers, and this isn't a joke. I had to double check. I really thought Michael was just pranking me. But these Japanese researchers mounted googly eyes to a self-driving cart. Um, by googly eyes, I mean exactly what you'd imagine. Like, think. But, but um, they, they describe them as googly eyes but they, it, 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 in the article, but they are not Googly they, eyes. They, they, do look not wiggle. they don't wiggle around. They are directed. So the, you know, uh, they look just like the traditional googly eyes that you see on, um, uh, animal, uh, I don't know, the kind you could stick like a button in the right. Yeah. Yes. But they, they are directed eyes because they point at, they were essentially designed to point at pedestrians to let the pedestrian know if the vehicle was looking at the pedestrian to give the pedestrian a sense of how they should proceed. 
Yeah. Um, so what they found was when the when the the googly eyes they do look like that, but I guess they're digital googly eyes. When they're looking at the pedestrian, the pedestrian goes, "Oh, okay, it's safe for me to walk." And when they're not looking at the pedestrian, the pedestrian's like, "Well, I'm not being acknowledged here. Let me wait back." Um, which is fascinating. I, I'd love to see this on all future vehicles, just giant googly eyes. Um, and then on the back, we have a, a middle finger. I thought it was cool in, in other respects because it 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 made a distinction between um, genders and how you uh, right. like how women would perceive the vehicle and stop. But there were a lot of men who decided to risk it and go ahead. Um, so it was interesting in that, you know, how do you design a vehicle that could, you know, maybe the googly eyes weren't scary enough or something. The guys thought, I, I don't understand why there was a difference in perception there. Maybe it's just a basic human risk assessment issue there, but um, it was, it was, it was a super interesting uh, study. And the video is, is pretty fun too. If you get a chance to watch it. We, we've talked with uh, people in regulatory situations, uh, you know, developing standards and engineering standards for automated vehicles about putting distinctive lights on automated vehicles so that people know they're coming. This would allow people to compensate for the, you know, expected or anticipated strange behavior of the automated vehicles. The car companies really, really, really don't like this idea because they want the automated vehicles to be blended in with every other vehicle. They have, I believe, the idea that if they were forced to identify them distinctly as automated vehicles, people would think properly that they were unsafe or at least had questionable safety. So this is, you know, the googly eyes are, are a great thing and a kind of fun, but the whole idea of putting distinctive uh, markings on automated vehicles is, has been addressed and it's, you know, it's, it would be a long slog to get that done, but people are talking about that, that, that kind of lighting and, um, and perhaps famous hand gestures I've used, <laughs> have suggested that would be attached to the automated vehicles. Well, yeah, I've always wanted an LED message board on the back of my vehicle that I could type something out real quick on. That's, hey, that, that doesn't sound safe. Hey, you're a great driver. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I've never, this is the first time I've heard of the um, identifying, um, you know, uh, putting the scarlet letter on automated vehicles. Because as a driver, I would like that. If I'm going along and all of a sudden a car just stops in front of me, I'm not going to blare on my horn at a computer that's just had a midlife crisis or a hard drive crash. I mean, I'm going to realize, oh, this is a car that's just a beta thing. I'll work my way around it and I'll make sure not to get near it. But at the same time, as a driver, I would want to disguise my car as an automated vehicle so people would get the hell away from me. They would stop trying to crawl into my trunk, maybe, or they'd want to hit me more. I don't know. I don't know. There's some, there's a, um, what was the story? There was a robot that was supposed to travel around the world. And then as soon as they brought it to America, it went through Philly and got beat up and dismembered. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> yeah, this is like 15 years ago. Is that right? The same thing. You know, some of the Google vehicles, I believe, were being attacked when they first started running around in Arizona. So I, I, I can see why you might want to disguise the fact that, I mean, it's only a matter of time before some redneck um shoots a shoots a car i mean <laughs> that he's mad at i mean we see road rage play out in so many insane ways across america i you know it's it's going to happen so i understand the need perhaps to, to disguise them in some ways but 
Um, I don't even know if it's possible with all the instrumentation and and things that you're going to have to have on these cars. I mean, there's, it seems silly to me that they would really want to hide, hide that. Well, the NRA is working hard to make sure it's not just red decks that have this capability. They want to make sure that everybody's got the ability of putting a bullet hole in AVs. So, you know, kudos to them. Listeners, where else can you hear discussions of googly-eyed vehicles and shooting cars? Only at the Center for Auto Safety podcast, which if you go to autosafety.org, click the donate button, you'll help keep us smiling and talking about other crazy things. Um, With that in mind, I think it's time for a recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. We've got a, a, a couple this week that are a little confusing. So... Volkswagen has a number of potentially involved vehicles, five. Um, So it seems like um, (laughs) Volkswagen left five cars on a shipping container that were not meant for this country. Um, On the affected vehicles, the rear view camera image may be delayed and not meet the response time required of the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard number 111 rear visibility everyone's familiar with fmvss 111 correct um so it should be it's their rear view uh camera which is uh, to me is awesome it's one of the the greatest things that's ever been required in a vehicle because reversing has never been fun i think everybody admits that so is this what happened basically these five cars just they oops we were supposed to send these to you know honduras and they wound up you know it said they reached a certain port in, I believe it's Germany, um, oh. Inden, and um, they were supposed to be stopped there, but they weren't. Um, and they were shipped to the U.S. with an incorrect software level. So um, that software level, whatever it was, did not meet the U.S. standard for the rear visibility, and they figured it out, and... They're fixing them, so and they jumped on it pretty quick. So, although it's an interesting story, it's not quite as interesting as some of the things that have happened um, with cars on boats in the last few years. We've seen a, a, a at least one ship that was sunk by a, by a fire that started in a vehicle, um, and it's if you you know there. I'm. It's kind of interesting to look into. Uh, how things get to America and what happens. This is one of the rare ones we see where they've actually shipped cars here that aren't compliant without knowing it, but they, they caught it pretty quick. Um, so not, no, no real harm done in this case. No, no, no injuries or any crashes. Well, I want to point out that a couple of years ago, the air force, um, misplaced six nuclear weapons that were inside of a B 52 and uh, transported them around the country without accounting. So I don't you know, come I think over my that, apartment. Don't look in the I think, I think that it's hard to really condemn Volkswagen for, you know, misplacing a few cars. And, and, you know, since the Air Force has done similar things, I think we'd have to say that you hate freedom if you think that, uh, you know, that that was a bad idea. That message brought to you by Fred Perkins, former nuclear missile engineer. <laughs> True story. Um, the, the Air Force just refers to him as a disgruntled employee. Okay. Um, wait, so this was a software error? So this is just something that Volkswagen can fix just by, you know, some software update? And that that leads me to the question of, 
why like why would different countries have different software for their rear view mirrors well it looks like it's the, the weird yeah it's the it, it looks like you know if they are shipping a vehicle to say if it, if those five vehicles were supposed to be stopped in that port taken off the boat and possibly shipped to any european market maybe the european standard is has a different response time so they build the same vehicles in Germany and then they modify them in the ports or add new software to make sure they're compliant with the countries they're going to. I'm not sure how they do it, but however, however this happened, um, there are different software builds depending on the regs you're trying to meet for each country. Um, so who knows? They didn't specify where the five vehicles were going or, or what the deal was, but it's, um, it's you know another uh, another recall that we've seen the last few weeks where manufacturers are moving pretty quickly to get a prop potential problem off the road. Well, that's good to know. Um, the next one we have is from Chrysler. Uh, the 2019 2020 Ram 4500 5500 uh, cab 26,961 potential vehicles affected. Um, their rear brake hoses are are out of specification orifice diameters wow where are you gonna get vocabulary like that hmm? you're not gonna get that on mark Marin, or maybe you would i don't know uh so what happened here so I, you know it's hard to tell whether or not this was a supplier issue but there is a federal motor vehicle safety standard number uh 106 that applies to brake hoses and it specifies an inside diameter that you know a brake hose the opening on the inside has to be a, a certain width or, you know, it has to be, can't be less than 60% of the nominal inside diameter of the brake hose. They had uh, shipped a lot of these vehicles with brake hoses that were too small. They discovered it in, uh, I believe, around 2019. Um, and the thing, this is a, you know, they knew it was out of compliance. It's clear. It clearly doesn't meet the standard. It's it's not even close, but they don't believe it's a safety issue. So they filed the inconsequential non-compliance petition that we've discussed before um, to basically say, you know, we know these things don't meet the standard, but they're just as safe as other brake hoses. Um, NITS ended up disagreeing. Uh, but again, with these petitions, it took two years and, you know, during that time, a lot of these vehicles went out of service, went off the road. Um, and so their recall and ends up being smaller and it saves them money in the end. So we're, we're always a little skeptical of those uh, inconsequential non-compliance petitions, especially here where it's very clearly a non-compliant brake hose. So that's uh, two uh, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety whatever the other s's numbers we've gotten for you 111 what was that 107 if you're 106. the first 106 okay <laughs> the first listener to write in tell us what what 101 is we'll get a, a a nice shout out on the next episode of the podcast that's right we're looking for 101 first caller anyway um how do we feel about moving to uh the the deep dive the world of fred perkins the Tao of fred You've now entered the Dow of Fred. He just it's, unmuted his microphone. 
It's time. It's time for the towel. Okay. <laughs> Thank God for the intro music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this week's uh, topic, it's not an acronym. Normally, we stick with acronyms. It's very strict rules here. Uh, but uh, I was told uh, not to use the acronym, but well, I guess it will be covered. This week's subject is something called Sensor Fusion. Um, not a prog rock band from the 70s. Fred, what is sensor fusion? Sensor fusion is something you do every day without thinking about it. So let me give you an example of sensor fusion. Let's say that you're walking down the street <coughs> and you see somebody um, and you get, you know, you're doing an inspection, visual inspection. It looks like somebody you might be interested in. And so you get a little closer. And as you get a little closer, rather than just the black and white image, you know, limited spectral information, you, you get a little closer and you realize their complexion is, you know, the same shade as the person you're expecting to see. You get a little closer yet, more spectral information, you're, you, you now see that their eye color is what you expect. So you're now looking at different frequencies of information. And uh, as they get closer, more, more details come out. So you're testing all of this against your hypothesis that this, in fact, is a person who gives you privileges at the personal level. So as, as they get closer and closer, you are constantly testing your sensors against this hypothesis that this is, in fact, somebody you know who gives you these special privileges. They get even closer yet, so you combine the visual information with tactile information. You give them a hug. They feel similar. They feel just about right to what you had expected to see, or that one, what you expected to feel. Come in? Sorry, is is the, the, the hug? Is that where special privileges come in? Well, I'll was, let your imagination run on the special privileges, but we're okay. just talking technical stuff here, okay? So Fair. it's so you combine the spec, the visual and spectral information that you've had with now the tactile information, different sensor input, okay? But it. It's it's all confirming your hypothesis that this is in fact the person that you know, and you know have expectations of personal privileges. privileges. So they get even closer yet, and you give them a nice wet kiss. So you're now combining taste and and you know those those oral sensations with the previous tactile information with the visual information, and you're trying to again confirm your hypothesis that this is in fact the person with whom you expect to have personal privileges. All of a sudden, you get smacked in the face by this person, and, and you discover that, in fact, your hypothesis was inadequate. This is not the person you expected to, to meet. And so, you know, that negative tactile information, the negative information you get from that smack in the face suggests that your hypothesis was, was actually quite wrong. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, the lesson here is that, and, and, then, and then the screams confirm it. <laughs> well, law enforcement. There's all kinds of things that can happen at that point. But, but the point is that this has all been associated with your hypothesis and confirmation of the hypothesis. Now, that's what visual. That's what sensor fusion does. It looks at a hypothesis of a situation and combines information from different kinds of sensors. Uh, in the case of a vehicle, it would be a camera. It could be a uh, infrared camera, because those are both 
sources of spectral information and, and information that refers to the environment that you're in. You could take a LIDAR. Uh, you could break an info from that. You could bring in a, a radar information. All of these refer to different kinds of aspects of the environment that you're in and the object that you're looking at or the situation that you're in. So all of them are testing the hypothesis that your car is, in fact, where it should be and, and is doing what it should be doing. A very simple example of that would be a lane-keeping system. Okay, so you have a hypothesis that the vehicle is in the lane and you want to test that hypothesis. So your camera looks at the right-hand side and finds lane markings that are going by at a rate that is representative of, of the speed that it's getting from yet another input. Looks on the left-hand side and it sees lane markers coming by, again, representative of what it would expect to see from uh, the visual information at that particular speed. So it tests the hypothesis and somewhere in its deep, dark recesses, it says, I have 95% probability based on my statistical analysis, that we are, in fact, in the center of a lane. So I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. Okay, so it's constantly testing this hypothesis. And as you veer to one side or the other, you, it detects that you've crossed a lane marker. So the hypothesis then uh, tests the hypothesis again and says, well, nope, I have very low probability that I'm inside the lane, so I'm going to make an adjustment based on where I was previously to come back into a situation where the statistical confidence associated with this hypothesis becomes very high again. So that's kind of how all of these sensor fusion systems work. And depending on the situation that you're in, you have different sensors that you weight with different kinds of uh, credibility to confirm or deny your hypothesis. Another, another situation is anti-swerve logic for vehicle. So for anti-swerve, you have to know how fast the car is going. You have to know what its drift rate is. You have to know that that drift rate is, again, testing your hypothesis for a safe drift rate, that you're outside of the range of where that drift rate ought to be, given where you should be. And then you, you also have to know where the car is supposed to be going. So if you're headed off the road, then you need to detect that the edge of the road is coming up. And of course, you don't want to be there. So you want to steer back into the road. So you've combined visual information from the cameras. You've combined inertial information from the accelerometers, uh, maybe a ring rate, uh, there may be a ring laser gyro combined in there as well to look at how fast you're swerving. You have a hypothesis that says, I want to be in the road, not crashed into the barriers over here. So the adjustments are made inside the computer that allow preferential braking to bring you back into the roadway and, and limit the swerve. So there's a lot of geekiness involved in this, of course. People talk about common filters. They talk about different kinds of sensors, complementary sensors, redundant sensors. Um, the complementary sensors are sensors that kind of overlap, but they provide different sorts of information. A good example of that would be the use of infrared cameras versus visual cameras. Oh, if you're going down a road and it's foggy, you can't see through the fog. So if you have an automated system that is trying to get information about what's ahead of you on the road and it can't see through the fog, 
Mm, that's a problem, right? So you're getting your hypothesis, your, your confidence level in the hypothesis that you're in the road doing the right thing would get very low. Now, an infrared camera is able to see through a lot of the fog and find warm objects that are on the other side of the fog. They don't have to be really, really warm. They have to be kind of warm. And so if you have the visual information from your standard camera that is showing you nothing useful, but you've got information from the infrared camera that says, well, I see two headlights coming at us, and I can estimate the distance from that, again, interpolating from the different information, then with the sensor fusion of these different inputs in your car's processor, you can make a reasonable determination of whether or not your car was safe to continue forward, should brake, or you know, should do whatever maneuver it, it needs to do in order to bring that overall hypothesis of passenger safety up to a sufficiently high level. So when I say sufficiently high and hypothesis levels and all that stuff, all of those levels, all of those numerical values are at the control of the manufacturer. There are no regulations attached to this. There are no particular government-supervised tests that are associated with any of the sets of fusion or the hypotheses or even the level of safety that has to be assumed in the hypothesis to continue your vehicle motion. And all of this is proprietary algorithms and information still. Yes, sir, Bob. And it all has to happen really quickly. And it all has to be correct. And none of this is visible to you as the consumer. You will never see it unless there's some regulation down the road or some vehicle or some mechanism down the road for you to address that. I don't think that you'll ever see this on a Monroney label on the side of a car. I, I, it would be probably very hard for people who don't have sufficient technical training to appreciate you know, the ins and outs of this and, and what's going on. So I've just thrown a big word jumble at you guys. you have any questions at this point? Yes. What does your sweatshirt say? No, that's not it my says, question. No, I'm kidding. No, I'll tell you. It says Wookiee <laughs> of the Year. That's my my family name is Wookiee. So this is Wookiee of the Year. I'm very proud of this sweatshirt, by the way. Okay. He's a grown man wearing a Wookiee sweatshirt. So, you know, who knows if what he just said is true? We don't know. Uh, no, not to harp on Tesla because they're uh, an easy target. But they're removing all the sensors in their cars and just relying on cameras. Do we know if any of those cameras are infrared based or are they purely visual light optical? Michael shaking said no. I don't have any information to suggest that Tesla is employing infrared technology in their cameras. If they do, great, because they need redundancies now that they're taking out other uh, systems and they don't appear that they're going to use a, any form of LIDAR um, to achieve their future vision of self-driving. Well, no pun they're intended. A, they're a, a, a Bay Area uh, located company, I mean, based company. Maybe they're just not used to the concept of fog. Well, is it ever foggy in San Francisco? No, I, I, mean, I don't I lived think so. There for three years. It was really gray a lot. It was like walking through a cloud a lot, but I don't know if that was fog. You know, I, th I think that, you know, sensor fusion, we think about it a lot in terms of autonomous vehicles and these future unicorns that people are always talking about, but they really might come into play sooner um, because, you know, we're looking right now at NHTSA writing a rule on automatic emergency braking that's going to include 
pedestrian automatic emergency braking. So the vehicles are going to be at some point, thankfully, required to sense and brake for pedestrians. And that's posed a problem so far for manufacturers. They haven't been able to um, sense pedestrians at night in uh, bad weather, high speeds. And that's mainly because a lot of the systems are based on cameras. They, they can't see very well at night. Well, um, video cameras, they can't see well at night. And um, they're just probably not enough to be able to succeed, particularly at high speeds and the kind of things that we really want to see AEB working towards. So, you know, uh, uh, supplementing that with a system like infrared cameras can really um, raise our confidence in in the performance of, of of that technology and it you know it's probably something that's going to be necessary in the future NHTSA likes to be somewhat tech neutral and not specify solutions but um, infrared and 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 lidar and you know they're developing things every day who knows what's next um, but we think those are going to be necessary to truly achieve some of the potential that automatic emergency braking and a lot of these other crash avoidance systems promise. Okay. So let's get into the history of automated emergency braking in a second. Um, but that was, I think that was a pretty good explanation of sensor fusion. Um, so my takeaway is I can use that in case my wife catches me kissing the wrong person. There was a failure in my sensor fusion, right? You can try, but you know, she yeah. might get into software validation issues very quickly. Mm, yeah, that could be a problem. It could be. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, Michael, uh, automated emergency brake, and we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, so, what you were just saying with infrared being a big help, especially at night and in foggy conditions, our LIDAR right now is really expensive. I mean, the price keeps dropping and dropping, but our infrared cameras, are those sensors, are we talking pennies, dollars, tens of dollars, hundreds? I think you're probably talking tens of dollars, maybe okay. depending on when, you know, if, if it goes and if, if that type of thing goes into full scale production, the prices drop as with sure. most things in the manufacturing sector. So, well, you got the hardware versus software here. Cause if you have a, uh, a Raspberry Pi that you've purchased for $10, you can go out and you can buy a infrared sensor that you can attach to or an infrared camera that you can attach to that Raspberry Pi for about another $10. So, you know, that's $20 of hardware and you plug in some electricity and, and off you go. The problem is, what is the software that you're going to put behind that to do the detection of and resolution and um, what was that word? Perception of the objects that are apparent in the visual field. Okay. That's, but That's expensive. Yeah. Well, it's expensive one time. Yes. Um, yeah. So is the hardware is relatively inexpensive. I mean, the software, okay, you're paying for that development, but that's part of a larger project of what you're developing things. You're doing things around um, the neural networks around identifying objects in general and just adding in more data points on the IR, the infrared. Yeah, I'm absolutely right. It's a significant yeah. cost, but you're going to amortize sure. that over a big production base. Yeah. The problem with deployment, of course, for the companies is that there's no requirement that vehicles have this. So the production base over which they can amortize this really um, expensive and sophisticated software is not guaranteed. It's very small. So it makes it risky for the companies to invest in the software and invest in the technical capabilities needed to make this 
uh, practical unless and until there is a, you know, a, a very high probability, like through regulations to require it, that in fact it will be deployed widespread within the industry. We think it should be. It has obvious benefits and obvious life-saving benefits. And we think, you know, it's pretty easy for NHTSA to design some tests that can distinguish between vehicles that are terrible in low, low light, speedy situations. Um, and it's it, that's not hard. You know, what they're trying to overcome here are manufacturer objections, and they want to continue to push and sell, you know, high-speed AEB and these other features um, for more money and to boost their profit margins. But it's inhibiting the the full rollout of the technology to to everyone and it's it you know that to us that results in more deaths and injuries over time that can be avoided is anyone doing aeb correctly or heading in the right direction or is it pretty much everyone's just doing it as a marketing checkbox no there i think a lot of people are trying to do it correctly and you know there's some are doing better than others um you know if you look at the the folks and the, the, how they met that first voluntary agreement um, that was reached between NHTSA and the Insurance Institute and, and some others um, and all the manufacturers, the major manufacturers, you'll see that some were very quick out of the gate and did a great job and others continue to lag behind the crowd. So those are a good indication. But, um, you know, it, Everyone seems to have their own system. There's not a lot of um, shared technology. So it's, you know, it's difficult to say often who is the best and who is the worst because, you know, while we see Toyota is deploying a lot of this technology and a lot of their vehicles, it seems to be working great. We're also seeing that there are certain situations where theirs might not be as good, um, like detecting pedestrians um, in, 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 in challenging situations. Um, so, it's really, it varies and it varies within uh, manufacturers. You know, some of their flagship models might have awesome systems and some of the base models not so great. So that's a, that's a tough question. A lot of nuance there. Right. But without regulations, it becomes like seatbelts type thing where no one wants to put them yeah. in. I mean, this is exactly what happens without regulations that are, you know, mandating safety technology for all. Um, you you end up with them being sold as features and basically being distributed however each manufacturer wants to within their sales platforms, you know, and, and it's it's not the fastest way to get it out into every car. Um, and regulation is, um, but NHTSA is always somewhat hesitant to be at the forefront um, in this in this situation. And I think there there are some reasons for that because we're not sure that that a b that it that can handle you know some of the high highway speeds has been sufficiently developed to be deployed at costs that make sense we just don't know we don't have enough data on that because um like we were talking about earlier the manufacturers don't don't let that kind of cost information out so um we're hoping that in the process of NHTSA writing the rule in the next year we'll 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 have a better idea of what the costs are because that's typically part of their evaluations dear listener do you work for an auto company do you want a change of career do you want to become a whistleblower because now is your chance contact us securely and let us know what the real story is 
or just donate. Donate's pretty good too. Becoming a whistleblower, that's a whole different lifestyle change. You become a chain smoker. You don't sleep that well. Um, but you're, you know, maybe you get a movie made about you and Russell Crowe plays you. Who knows? Did Russell Crowe play the, the tobacco guy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was rusty. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's our man. Yeah. So I think with that, it's time for listener mail. And this week we have mail from super fan Jane. She says, hi, I love this podcast. I have discovered that I am a nerd. Who knew? My guess is your brother knew. Uh, I would love to hear about the effects on the environment and on miners regarding getting materials for the batteries of electric cars. Also for the environmental effects of the disposal. Ooh. And is the transfer of energy from battery to the car parts that need to, the power. Yes, I'm a nerd without engine vocabulary. Similar to the pathway of solar panels transferring energy to their own energy source storage. Thank you for this great podcast. I plan to donate at the end of the year. I promise. This is an awesome question. I think we've touched on the transfer of energy um, a little bit last week. When we were talking about um, charging uh, EVs and and if what if you had solar panels on your house and doing that. But uh, we've never really touched on the first part, and I don't I don't know what kind of information is out there. So the effects of the envi- on the environment and mining. Um, for getting the materials needed for today's batteries. We'll say, stick with today's lithium-ion batteries as opposed to like sulfur-iron batteries, um, which is a different issue. Um, I, I know, Fred, you got some thoughts here. Have you ever heard of the Republic of Congo? Yeah, it's, I planned a vacation there one day. And, and, and uh, you know, it's not considered to be a hotbed of liberalism. Uh, slave labor, you know, all kinds of things like that going on. That is the source for cobalt, for the most part, that goes into uh, the lithium-ion batteries. There's another country called, uh, what is it called? Russia? Russia, that's it. Right. That that provides cobalt. So you've got some idea of, of the kind of situation that are confronted by the miners who are producing some of these chemicals. The lithium is generally produced in South America, actually, in the Altiplano area of South America is a, is a big source of lithium. And what they do is they have these vast ponds where the liquid that they pump out of the ground that contains lithium is um, pumped into these salt ponds and left to evaporate so they can get the concentration of lithium in the water down to a level where it's commercially recoverable. So, you know, birds land in this, there's all kinds of things going on. The, the miners themselves aren't very damaged by the lithium production because there's, most of it is done uh, using water that gets pumped into the ground and then extracted. But of course, that's not necessarily good for the ground. And, you know, areas like Oklahoma, there's, this is a bit of a digression, but areas like Oklahoma, where they pump a lot of water into and out of the ground to recover oil, <laughs> suffer very frequent earthquakes, very unsettling there. So I don't know that that is also the case in areas where they're recovering lithium. It wouldn't surprise me, though, if that's the case. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of issues associated with the mining, the tailings, the production, the actual miners' health and safety as they go after this stuff and some very sketchy parts of the world. Um, and, you know, we get oil from some pretty sketchy parts of the world, too. We Is do. It, a, a, you know, 
the the uh, I'm just going to stick with again the the current battery technology lithium ion is that what do you guess slightly better than oil much better about the same um, depends depends uh, depends on what how much you like Saudi Arabia uh, it depends on how you measure it and and where you measure it so the per I would say that the per capita safety or the the per miner safety of cobalt is probably not as good as the per worker safety of the oil industry. Oil industry has been added a lot longer and they use uh, tools that minimize the amount of human beings that are involved in it. It's not to say that that is a, you know, off the, off the charts safe industry to be in. There's a lot of, a lot of dangerous work that goes on in recovering of oil. But the, what about the environmental impact? So like the, the emissions? Well, the emissions of cobalt are, are vast because you've got giant mines with giant tractors and people and um, a lot of excavation, which is typical of any extraction industry that's, yeah. that's getting ore out. So there's that. How do you compare it to oil? Well, oil is um, less intrusive in many cases per, on a per well basis. But there's lots of wells, and you know, how do you compare the environmental impact of wells being driven in indigenous, uh, indigenous-controlled areas of the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador to? Well, if you're another, Chevron, you say nothing's wrong, right? And I, so, how do you compare the two? I don't know how to do that, but there's significance, you know, to both, and uh, it's a great question. It's something I'd like to learn more about. Okay, but sure, Michael. I was going to say, too, on the cobalt, there are Tesla is actually the major member, it appears, in a, in a fair cobalt alliance organization that is trying to push for more, more humane um, cobalt extraction procedures. So they, and, and, you know, that's a good thing. I know we talk about Tesla in maybe negative terms sometimes, but they are, seem to be leading the charge there to try to find cobalt fair trade if it exists out there okay well let's fast forward five years in the future and maybe solid state batteries are more of a thing does that wind up being better again hard to know uh, you know the, the uh, iron sulfur batteries people are talking about require iron and sulfur and there are some really big iron mines in the world and um it's you know it's less likely to degrade virgin areas because the areas where extractable iron is found are pretty well understood now, but they're vast and huge scars on the earth where that happens. You can recycle iron though and purify it, right. and so it's a, you know it's it's a complex situation, and I don't know what the answer I don't know what the answer to that is. Sulfur is supposed to be easily recoverable from a lot of sources. I don't, I don't know even as much about that as iron extraction. I don't know a hell of a lot about iron extraction, but uh, I would, I would say that it's probably more benign from the perspective of the cobalt miners in the Republic of Congo, just because it wouldn't have to come from there. But then right. you got, you know, then you have the other issues of economic deprivation of those miners who once worked in the cobalt industry. These are these are really difficult issues to sort through. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think a couple of people have done uh, studies in terms of the environmental impact of the batteries versus, um, you know, ice vehicles and that the battery based vehicles with the whole mining extraction and the energy source 
Um, even getting it off of a standard grid, you know, uh, if it's a coal power, it turns out after five to seven years, it's, its environmental impact is less. I don't remember these studies where I found them, but I think this sounds about right. And neither of you are objecting to me. No, I, I think that's about right. There, you know, there's uh, <clears throat> kind of a, a rule of thumb that the crossover for carbon footprint for the EVs uh, is somewhere around fifty to seventy thousand miles. Right. I've heard that from several sources. Um, again, it, it depends on whether or not the EV is powered by conventionally fueled power plants or by some power plants with a, a you know a much better ratio of solar to conventional power. Yeah, I think if it's you know it's solar wind, it, it comes down in less period of time, and so yeah. I think. I think the ideal world, so talking five to seven years, your carbon footprint's better. And in the ideal world, we um, we replace our infrastructures with some cleaner energy sources and things like that we talked about briefly last week. Then we're talking a better overall impact. Well, and, even a more better ideal world would be people leave their cars at home and take the bus. Uh, someone just got shot last week in the bus near me. Yeah, well, how many people died in, in car crashes last week, Anthony? And I saw the note of shock in your face when I mentioned that prospect because you have buses <laughs> in New York, damn it. No, I'm on the subway all the time when I go outside. I have to get on the subway and see humanity. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not like on TV. It's it's cleaner, um, but it's, you know, there's, it's a thing. It's still the subway, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. Um so, uh, Jane, I, hopefully we answered most or some of all of that question. And I know the answers weren't as ideal or perfect, but, you know, um, maybe our, our, you know, maybe you can ask your brother for more information. It'd be. It'd be oh, a, fine. Put it on me. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. I mean, this is a, a better topic, probably less contentious than who are you voting for? Um, Not in my family. Yeah, because you don't vote because you're all felons. Okay. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> we never got caught. <laughs> all right. Uh, is anything else? Uh, or should I, No, you know, I think we've had enough. Let's just wrap it up and because and, I hear nothing but car horns honking outside my window right now. Um, again, thank you for listening. Go to autosafety.org. Click on donate. Support us. And it will and allow me to invest in earplugs so I can stop hearing the traffic outside my window. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Very much. Thank you. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.